Hi, I'm Debbie Georgias. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Governor Andrew Cuomo, the Chosen, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America Slept, joins me, and DC's Corona Insider Trading Scandal. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome back to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Many people are commenting on the relative absence of Joe Biden from the national political scene and in any kind of media appearances after his victories in the most recent primaries. Some people are attributing this to his needing to rest up or reconsider what he's doing, but we've talked all along and I've said for months, there is no way the Democrat party is going to let Joe Biden be their nominee. They're also not going to let Bernie Sanders be their nominee because they know a Democrat socialist can't win America. And frankly, Joe Biden has been too confused too often on the campaign trail and many people assume Joe will make voters nervous. There seems to be someone emerging out of the shadows now that maybe this is the Democrats' pick to slide into place in place of Joe Biden somehow through the many tricks they can pull at their convention. And this would be New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo. I want to start by asking Matt, the very wonderful producer, to play a clip. This is, a, a, this is an ad that Andrew Cuomo has out touting how New York, the state of New York, where he's governor, is going to lead the nation handling this coronavirus um, concern. So here is Andrew Cuomo telling us all about it. I'll tell you a few more things after he's done. I do believe that whatever this is, four months, six months, nine months, we are going to be the better for it. You know, they talk about the greatest generation, the generation that survived World War II. Dealing with hardship actually makes you stronger. Life on the individual level, on the collective level, on the social level, life is not about avoiding challenges. Challenges are going to come your way. Life is going to knock you on your rear end at one point. Something will happen. And then life becomes about overcoming those challenges. That's what life is about. And that's what this country is about. America is America because we overcome adversity and challenges. That's how we were born. That's what we've done all our life. We overcome challenges. And this is a period of challenge for this generation. And that's what has always made America great. And that's what's going to make this generation great. I believe that to the bottom of my soul. We're going to overcome this. And America will be the greater for it. And my hope is that New York is going to lead the way. Okay, my friends, I challenge you, you cannot watch that ad and think, oh, it's just about trying to inspire the people of New York to feel hopeful about the coronavirus, to be inspired by this governor. That is a presidential campaign ad. And the other reason 
beside that, if you just listen to the words, you're able to hear, he's talking about America and how great America is. We're gonna emerge from all of this. This is a guy trying to convey a message nationally that he really is aware of America's greatness, understands his unique greatness, and understands all of what's happening. He's trying to convey a, I am a national leader. CNN has been playing that and referring to that ad over and over. And so I think maybe he may be the one that they decide, the Democrat party decides they're gonna slip him in in some way at their convention and not have Joe Biden become their candidate. I thought they would try to slip Hillary in, but I think even they, the Democrat party, realized that the America probably couldn't take yet one more campaign by Hillary for president. So very interesting stuff. And Andrew Cuomo will keep an eye on him. I'm gonna close out the first five today by mentioning that if you were listening to the show on Monday, I mentioned to you that in Dallas County, where I live, we have a shelter in place order. I am complying with that order. Yes, you can see him in my studio, but just so you know, I pre-recorded this show on Monday to play on Wednesday and starting tomorrow or for the rest of, until this order ends, next couple weeks at least, I'll be doing this show from home. It'll look very different, but yes, I am in my studio for this particular show being pre-recorded. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I mentioned we started the show. We have a guest joining us, and I want to tell you a bit about him before we bring him on. He'll be joining us by phone. He is the author of this book, and I'm going to hold it up to show you. I cannot urge you strongly enough to buy this book. It's called Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. The author is Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. He is U.S. Air Force retired. The book is packed with facts and also packed with stories that give examples of the ideas he's talking about. And it isn't exactly correct to say it's an easy read it, because it's, but it's, it's, I mean, I kind of whipped through it. It's very interesting. You can see by all the stickies sticking out of the side that I'm, I, I need about two hours to talk to uh, General Spaulding, but I believe we only have about 20 minutes. Uh, he, General Spaulding, if you, I think many of you probably know of him, but he's retired from the U.S. Air Force as a Brigadier General after more than 25 years of service. He's a former China strategist for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Joint Staff at the Pentagon. He's also a senior defense official and defense attache to the country of China. So General Spaulding, I believe we have him on phone. Welcome, sir. Thank you, great to be here. So glad you could join me. And I, I must, I really wanna commend your book. It's just, um, maybe fun isn't the right word to read. It's informative to read. It is, is a really good and well, uh, just extremely informative. So uh, thank you for writing it. And I wanna just jump right in. You wrote this book. I was thinking about this in the way here. You wrote this book before the whole coronavirus issue even became known to the world. It was out in 2019, right? Yeah, it came out in October 1st, and really um, it represents the last uh, five or six years of my time in service because I worked uh, in intently on the U.S.-China competition. Well, that's what I want to get to, uh, the, the work you did and what you learned in working uh, on behalf of America in China and also um, on be America's behalf and our, as, um, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So to start with, and, and many people have been talking about this more recently, when President Trump ran, he talked about wanting to change trade relations with China. He targeted that during his campaign, talked about the need to adjust our trade relationship with them. And I don't want to go into uh, the trade deals and tariffs issues, but 
to ask you, so China, I guess I actually, let me start this way. There's so many ways to start. It's a great, great book. You uh, talked about something we've actually talked about on this show before, the 1990 work called, 1999 piece called Unrestricted Warfare, written by two senior colonels of China, China's People Liberation Army, the PLA. So they wrote something, this book called Unrestricted Warfare. We've had other guests talk about it. But can you kind of summarize what was the point of that book, Unrestricted Warfare? Well, it was extending the concept of Mao's idea of people's war, which is really political warfare, uh, to the globalized, Internet-connected world. What they realized was um, rather than uh, approach a greater adversary, a more powerful military adversary like the United States, it would use the openness of globalization, the Internet, to um, essentially slingshot the Chinese Communist Party over the United States and and if you look at um, from the aspect of economics and finance and trade, investment, um, the Internet, they've been very successful in doing that. And we see that they're taking advantage of the current coronavirus crisis to accelerate that even more. Yeah, you know, it's an amazing thing. And I had not, I mean, I, I have had other guests talk about this idea of unrestricted warfare that for many Americans, especially if we're not militarily involved, we just think of warfare or preparing our country for war with other countries as, well, you train your military, you have sufficient personnel, you get adequate equipment, and, and you know, for the Navy, you get ships, and for the Air Force, you get uh, jets. But we think of it as something that's all about military force. But this, uh, in fact, is even an extension of Sun Tzu's, what's his book, Sun Tzu's? Um, that Art of War. Yeah, art of war. Uh, the, the, all of those ideas that are saying, no, you really can be very successful as a warrior nation without necessarily being militarily engaged. China doesn't think they could militarily take over America. But as you recount in your book, they've been successful in a whole host of ways in engaging in warfare against us. And we didn't even know it. We, we didn't even recognize it. Okay, I'm kind of summarizing your book. I'm going to, I'm going to turn and ask you just a bunch of questions to start with. So for the first thing, you know, China uses trade in a way that Donald Trump kind of recognized trade was a way to take advantage of us. Can you just talk a little bit about how they use trade in, as, as a form of warfare against America? Yeah, so they, they talk about two markets. They, call, they talk about a domestic market and an international market. Domestically, they seek to ensure that their companies have an uneven playing field within China by having uh, both tariff and non-tariff barriers. So I'll just give you one example. Um, they opened up their financial industry for credit card payments from uh, Visa and MasterCard, which they have prevented consistently over the few, last few decades. So Visa and MasterCard uh, input an application to um, run credit card payments in China, and of course the application was never accepted. So they did make it legal, but they didn't actually allow it to occur. So they blocked um, certain industries and, and companies uh, within China. And then external, the international markets, they seek to subsidize their companies to become dominant in, in those industries that they that they go after. And so it is a very much a parasitic or or predatory economy uh, in the trade realm. Love, yeah, that's great explanation. Another big um, project they undertook was this Belt and Road Initiative, where 
they laid it out or present it to countries as a way we are helping you, we are sharing our technology, we're helping connect us, and then end up using it to the disadvantage of the countries that embrace that Belt and Road idea. Uh, and actually, the other, I'd love if you give this example too. There's so many stories in your book, I, I just wanna share all of them, but the way that China, to aid countries that seem to need help to have sufficient money to build ports or develop their port facility. And can you explain how China used their process of loaning money to end up to those countries and helping build ports to end up taking control? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we tend to think about for ports is we tend to think of them as usually a local resource. So uh, either the, the local state or the local city um, you know, does investment in that port and it, and it provides uh, local um, benefits to that economy. But what the Chinese do is they look at the, the international trading system, the physical aspects of it, the ports, the rail, the roads, the telecommunications, as all providing advantage for China. So in port economics, it just so turns out that if you um, double the efficiency of two ports, two interconnecting ports, the port that's leaving China say, and say the port in, in uh, Africa, Djibouti, and you double efficiency at those two ports, you create the net effect of having the distance between those ports. So this is not covered in the WTO, and it actually creates a benefit for the Chinese Communist Party in terms of how they move trade around the world. And so what they do is they use that to advantage their friends and disadvantage their adversaries. And so, for example, we don't have a port that uh, can meet, match the efficiency of some of these ports in China and the port of Piraeus, say, in Greece. So they're, they're essentially connecting um, the markets and, and raw materials to China in ways that benefit China and, and essentially disadvantages uh, the United States. And, and the other country that they do this to is India. So they, they've created a port in Sri Lanka the port of Hambantota, and they built that uh, to great expense for the, the country of Sri Lanka. Then Sri Lanka couldn't pay, yeah. and so China took ownership of the port. So this is another way that they use that, that um, predatory, predatory finance to ensure that they have access to the ports they want, and then they install the equipment to uh, automate the, the, um, the ports in ways that are just not um, possible in the West. You know, one more example I want to go to before I get to how what America is doing about it and, and how you had a harder time penetrating the American government um, to understand what China was doing, to convince them to see this as more of a problem. But I could not believe this story. I, literally, I have like 25 little stickies sticking out of this book. But the one story that I, I was just amazed by was the way in which China used hacking, hacking in to... They eventually ultimately wanted to get at some company in an industry that they wanted to be part of, but they hacked in, they got information about a gentleman who worked for this company and his fondness, this individual employee's fondness in America for some sports team or his college team recognized he got individual emails. He signed up for their emails that gave him sporting news and they inserted in the email some um, something that he clicked on because he wanted to chase down some detail and through that penetrated the entire company's 
software and, and information. I, I mean, that's just, that sounds like the stuff of science fiction. Can you talk about, first of all, is this the government itself doing this or, this, or with, of China, or is this you know, just, just some individual person in China acting and, and, and accomplishing that kind of thing? So what happens is there, there's many um, uh, national programs. There is Made in China 2025. There's China Standards 2035. There's China's uh, Science and Technology uh, Strategic Plan. Uh, there's the five-year plan. So they have all these uh, strategic um, plans at the, at the national level that drives all this activity. So, for example, they'll say, hey, we need this um, you know, chemical technology. That's uh, one of the things that's a priority for the Chinese government. Then uh, they'll offer um, beneficial loans and subsidies for those companies that go after those technologies. And if they find that there's a company overseas, an international company that has it, then they'll unlock the elements of state intelligence apparatus to go after those for providing that information to their own state-owned companies. So it's a, it, is, it goes all the way from strategy at the top to incentivizing companies to go out and create this capability. And then if needed, they will use the intelligence apparatus of the state. In this case is what they did. They, they used essentially intelligence tradecraft to uh, track down who had access to uh, root access to the network and then essentially created a, um, a campaign to figure out how to insert uh, co you know, a, a link to that person based on their own proclivities to, to click on things uh, in order to get access to the entire company. And then they basically turned around and, and took their entire product um, uh, list, their um, customer list, they uh, took all of their research and development and then essentially copied wholesale the company and started competing in the same industry. <laughs> that was the most breathtaking story. I think I told you in an email, my husband had read this book first. This happens, we, we, we both read a lot, but he read this book, your book first and just said, you've got to read this. And this was one of the great, just amazing stories. You picture yourself, this innocent guy, the company, you know, on his company computer, enjoying getting it and, and having that kind of result you just described. So I want to get around to you talking not, not about this just in your book as this an observation about how China functions and is what is government, the lengths is government is willing to go to, to penetrate American businesses, to manipulate trade to its favor. But you actually talk about this, all of how China conducts itself as a danger to America and the future of our liberties in our country. Can you explain how that, what, what do you mean by that? How could China's conduct of this kind end up endangering the liberties of the American people? Yeah, so um, the Chinese Communist Party actually um, is definitely afraid of democratic principles and rule of law and civil liberties and human rights because they're afraid that their population might um, uh, be attracted to those things. And so that's one of the reasons they created the Great Firewall. That's why they have propaganda and control the media. But in addition, they're very uh, worried about that, those ideas being prevalent in the world outside China because somehow they might seep into China. And so that causes them to need to suppress those, uh, not just in their borders, but without their borders. And those come into conflict with, um, with the United States 
own vision of, of universal liberties like freedom of speech, for example. So as I lay out in the book, there was a mid-level employee at the Marriott Corporation who liked to tweet about Tibet, didn't really know about China or yeah. Tibet. Uh, and um, the Chinese Communist Party saw it because they monitor social media everywhere. And uh, they called up the Marriott Corporation and, and told them to, uh, you know, fire the guy and apologize. And they did. You know, uh, just recently we had Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, who almost lost his job for tweeting about Hong Kong. So this is what the Chinese Communist Party does. They attempt to control speech, not just within their own borders, but outside. And it's one of the reasons why they like information technology so well, because they know that the power of Facebook and Amazon and Google to influence your purchasing patterns can also be used to influence the way that you, um, be, you know, act as a citizen. And they're deploying this within their own borders today and uh, perfecting the ability to use those same tools and technologies to incentivize, incentivize their citizens to be, to be, quote, good citizens according to the Chinese Communist Party, but also to take those companies out into the world, and these are companies like Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, and then use those companies to influence the population outside their borders. That's what they. That's why they seek to use 5G as a as a platform for spreading uh, their ability to do, conduct influence outside their borders today. Yeah, that 5G thing actually was. Um more and more Americans were are waking up to what China intended to use with five, how they would abuse the rights of other people by if they could get their 5G equipment spread. It is moving around the world, but I think there's more awareness in America that we don't want their 5G um, things here. I want to, uh, there's like three other things I want to hit. One was, uh, so within your work, you, as we mentioned earlier, for our happy listeners, uh, that you actually have served as the uh, former China strategist for the chairman and joint chiefs of staff and, and the joint staff at the Pentagon. You raised at some point in the course of your military career to some people, uh, more than one person, several people in uh, your military realm saying, I think China is a problem. I think these things are problems. And many people, it sounded like, or at least several responded by saying something along the lines of, well, that's not really my job to, to deal with this. So you became aware of what is really... I don't think it's too dramatic to say it's that ultimately China is kind of posing existential threat to America. And yet it wasn't something we were tuned into in our military structure sufficiently to assign someone to be responsible to assess it, address it and um, and and move to uh, defend America against it. So are we any better off now than we were when you first raised it in terms of, of our country being aware and fighting back? I think it's been a slow awakening of the national security apparatus in Washington, D.C. I think the coronavirus has actually accelerated accelerated it. But it is quite difficult for uh, the Pentagon, which has been used to a world of geography and bombs and missiles and planes and submarines, and trying to transition to this idea that the entire um, you know, your entire daily life can be have elements of competition and conflict embedded within it without you really perceiving it. You know, one of the things that um, I talk about is this protest that occurred after the um, the elections in 2016. And they were actually the, the protest was influenced by the Russians, but they used artificial intelligence bots, social media networks 
and big data to to create these effects. Now, these are the tools of the modern battlefield, but they're not tools that the Pentagon is used to using. These are tools that Facebook uses as tools that Google uses and turn tools that Amazon uses, but it's not tools that the Pentagon uses. And one of the big challenges for us as a democracy is that for the, for the Pentagon to adequately fight this battle, they would actually need to have Facebook's data. And we don't want them to have Facebook's data. So this, is a, this becomes an existential challenge for America in an Internet-connected you know, world. And so we have to think very hard about how we structure our technology to ensure data security and to prevent uh, in foreign influence in a world where, you know, in, in essence, the technology has surpassed the ability of the government to defend us. You know, I talk about the Second Amendment. The purpose of the Second Amendment was to give the population the ability to fight a repressive government if our system of government ever failed. Yes. <laughs> and if you take and you look at that protest in New York City, those people did not know that they were protesting on behalf of the Russian government. And so in a lot of ways, we technology has created this world where you may not know you're being oppressed or even who your oppressor is. And so in that world, a gun really is, is becomes secondary to actually understanding what is the true, uh, the truth out there. That is, yeah, that was a great summary, great, great description. And you know, it, it sounds like from what you're saying that in order to fight back against what China's doing on so many levels and kind of aspects of society, the Pentagon, the government has a role, uh, but other elements in the federal government have a role beside uh, the military role, that, but to fight back against China, to uh, protect our citizens, protect our security, protect our privacy. It takes private entities. I mean, businesses have to be more tuned into what uh, China is doing, more alert to how they could be having their uh, in, in some way having their business be uh, shaped or impacted or hacked. You need to have this kind of like an all hands on deck feel you need for America to sufficiently and completely fight back. I mean, doesn't private industry have a role too in this? Absolutely, and the technology to to protect Americans' data needs to be built into the internet. So, you know, we don't build uh, into our internet the ability to encrypt your data and prevent uh, either foreign countries or uh, other um, bad actors from having access to it. We built the internet on a system of open data. This is very dangerous for a democracy. And one of the reasons the national security strategy says we need to have a secure nationwide network. Um, these, this is not something that Facebook is going to advocate for because they actually want access to your data so that they can you know, sell you more ads. This is, this is a problem of our system or of a technology of our system is it's really given the Chinese Communist Party an advantage in advancing totalitarianism in an open system. That's a great last line, approaching to, you know, advancing totalitarianism in an open system. Okay, I want to switch very quickly to the uh, question of, you know, I, I know your book was out before we had this whole problem of the coronavirus, but I noticed that the, um, the gentleman who is, is China's ambassador to the United States, and it's, I believe is pronounced Kui, T, and Kai, but uh, it's, he is the China ambassador to the U.S., and he told Axios in an HBO interview that he stands by a statement he previously made that it's crazy 
for China to be spreading rumors about the coronavirus somehow having origin having originated on a military in a military laboratory in the U.S. And it's so interesting because he said that. And then, of course, you're surely you're aware the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China has been publicly promoting this conspiracy that somehow coronavirus came from a U.S. military lab. And then this uh, Kui T and Kai, who is the China's ambassador, said again, no, no, that's not true. You know, this is crazy. His word was crazy to say America is, uh, that, that the coronavirus originated in American military. Uh, so what is your sense? Is this guy, um, this Chinese ambassador, do you have any sense of, based on your knowledge of China, is he, uh, you know, dangerously ch- uh, disagreeing with the Chinese government or he would only say that if he's trying to advance the Chinese government's position now? Like, I, what, what accounts for that difference in, in um, whether willing to blame China, blame America for the coronavirus? Well, this is something that they do quite often, and it's actually designed to um, promote their agenda. So what they're trying to do is create this perception that there is disagreement in the Chinese leadership. In fact, both of these officials uh, get their um, direction from uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So they are actually trying to portray that the United States is the creator of the coronavirus, and then here in the United States, they're trying to per se, per say that, well, that, that speech isn't really sanctioned. But if you go around the world and you look at the speech from all the other um, uh, ambassadors in China, in fact, they just tweeted out the, the French ambassador's uh, statement to France. They're saying, yes, the U.S. did create this uh, coronavirus. So this is part of the campaign. It's, it's meant to basically have us say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to respond because, you know, he repudiated what the government was saying. But in reality, we need to respond because what's happening is not only are the Chinese people being told this, our allies and partners are being told this as well. And the the longer that we don't respond, the more that it is believed uh, that, that we are the cause of this coronavirus. So this is part of a campaign. It's a campaign that to essentially strengthen, to take advantage of the coronavirus and strengthen China's position uh, in the aftermath. And this is, uh, they're incredibly effective at it. Last question, given all the disinformation that China regularly puts out, now they're saying that they've had absolutely no more cases of coronavirus. Uh, Do you think there's any reason for America to doubt what China's saying about its current status in the coronavirus? Oh, absolutely. In fact, they just uh, tweeted out a video where uh, a family was trying to um, uh, be admitted in a hospital in China and they wouldn't admit them because they were afraid of it, it, uh, you know, essentially affecting their coronavirus numbers. So um, I wouldn't believe a thing coming out of the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party. You know, it's so funny. Uh, this is, we, we do, we're at the end of our time, I know, but it's so interesting. America, I'm not saying that any country in the world is perfect or any government is perfect. But sometimes I think America kind of has, uh, many Americans, a Pollyanna view about our own government, but much more so about governments like China. We just can hardly get our arms around, hardly fathom that the actual government would engage in all the kind of behavior you describe in your book, in the what you're describing right now, that they're trying to put out disinformation. And on the one hand, 
let their ambassador to America say it's crazy, tell Americans it's crazy for China to be blaming America for the virus. On the other hand, they're out there around the world. I mean, we just, I, I, I think we've had a Pollyanna view. We, we don't necessarily perceive well the level of willingness to be duplicitous to the world that is practiced on a regular basis by the country of China. So you agree with that or anyone embellish that thought at all? No, I think that's absolutely correct. In fact, we're just not, we're not geared to this type of warfare. We, we think of, again, we think of, um, you know, war is, is, is for fighting. And then during peacetime, everybody should behave uh, accordingly. And that's just not how the rest of the world is. And, and we have to recognize that particularly China thinks of competition and conflict in completely different terms. And they seek to undermine us from within. It's not about dominating us on the battlefield. It's about changing uh, our ability to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong and whether or not, you know, democracy or communism is a better um, thing for our society. We are speaking with Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. And again, this is book, folks. I urge you to, you can order it on Amazon. I'm not sure Amazon is delivering right now, but soon they will be again. The book is Stealth War by Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. The subtitle, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. General Spaulding, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, and it's great talking to you. Great talking to you, sir. Folks, I, I truly, I urge you to buy this book. It is just, uh, it's an easy read, and it will, if you ever needed anything to burst your bubble about whether we should trust things coming out, statements coming out from the Chinese government, uh, this will help burst that bubble for you. One last quick story I want to get to today, very briefly, and that story relates to, in Washington, there are now senators, U.S. senators, who are being accused of having sold their uh, make, made sales with their stock holdings, their shareholding, sharehold, can't speak English, <laughs> selling stock after they knew about the coronavirus and the likelihood the coronavirus would greatly harm America's economy. Four different members of the U.S. Senate now being accused of essentially insider trading, dumping stocks after, the, after they were briefed about the coronavirus. Those four senators, the key one that I want to focus on very briefly is Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina. We've talked about him on the show before because he is a, a Republican senator and he is the head of the, um, the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, one of the committees that went out of their way to not help Donald Trump every chance they got, as everyone in the country who's paying attention could see, as Devin Nunes was pointing out, that the entire Russia-Trump collusion hoax was simply a hoax. And Devin Nunes is uncovering information about what happened inside the FBI and, and the DOJ. And Senator Burr simply was not going to help at all. A lot of suspicion about whether he uh, had something to be gained by having the Russia collusion hoax be believed. But just a senator who's never stood up for when it matters. He had a briefing early in January 
became aware of the potential harm uh, from the coronavirus and shortly thereafter unloaded his stocks. He sold 33 stocks held by both him and his spouse, value the sales estimated at somewhere between 628000 and $1.72 million. Another senator, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler, she is actually an appointed, relatively newly appointed, the wife of a big Republican donor. Uh, she sold stock valued at about $1.275 million, between that or $3.1 million, uh, also selling off, uh, avoiding major potential losses. The rest of America suffered. She claims blind trust. She didn't know anything about it. Uh, Democrat senator from California, Dianne Feinstein, ranking member of Senate Judiciary, she sold stock uh, owned by herself and her husband, valued somewhere between $1.5 million and $6 million between January 31st and February 18th. Last one, Oklahoma Republican Senator Jim Inhofe sold stocks January 27th that amounted to around 400,000. All four senators apparently got great financial advantage from insider knowledge about the impending coronavirus disaster, sold stock, saved themselves from the disaster the rest of America and all of our pension funds are facing. This, my friends, cannot be left to sit. I'm just going to tease the story today. We'll follow it uh, going forward. But there is, it, people say that members of Congress and the Senate have immunity from insider trading laws. That's not exactly true. There was a law that passed because of outcry because members of Congress had immunity from insider trading laws. There was a law passed called the Stock Act, which basically was trying to get at what the, the kind of behavior these people engaged in. So it is not 100% clear that they will escape liability. They certainly should have liability from the voters who ought to be telling them that's a rotten deal, a rotten thing to do, and you're out. But those four people are now facing scrutiny, at least, about their sale of stocks um, after having realized that we are about to all be in the middle of the coronavirus disaster we are now facing. And that, my friends, is my show for today, America Can We Talk. I love talking with you, love talking about America. Hope you tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, to talk about America with me. I talk about America. I talk about the stories of the day, the issues of the day, always from the perspective to inspire you to more deeply appreciate the unique greatness of America, the blessing we have to be Americans, the responsibility we have as patriots in every generation to stand up and speak up for the precious founding ideas of this country. That's why I do my show. That's what I talk about every, every week, every day. So as I close out every show, I will today with uh, my summary of why the stories I talked about today matter to you. So to start with, we had our first story today uh, was about Andrew Cuomo, the chosen. I'm telling you folks, they're setting him up. This is a trial balloon by the Democrats you know, see whether America would accept him. Biden's obvious disappearance during COVID-19 crisis. He's not going to be the Democrat nominee. He's simply not up to it health-wise. Bernie's open borders and free health care for illegal aliens is not going to play well in the COVID-19 environment. They cannot let a Democrat socialist be their candidate. Enter New York Democrat Governor Andrew Cuomo as a Democrat convention nominee. New York appears to be hit hardest by the virus. New York City, under de Blasio, enables Cuomo to appear sane by comparison. Praise for Trump may make it harder for Trump to tag him with a nickname. Cuomo did praise Trump and said he's handled the virus well. He's, I'm probably wanting to eat his words. Cuomo is more viable than Biden or Bernie. Trump remains stronger than all three. 
on D.C.'s Corona Insider Trading Scandal, Why It Matters to You, U.S. Senators Dumping Stock After Intelligence Briefing on Coronavirus and Ahead of the Public's Knowledge is Absolutely Indefensible, Disgraceful, and Should Require Resignations. Loeffler, the one woman, Kelly Loeffler, uh, may have an excuse if her blind trust type story holds up. These people are not lords. Americans have not granted them special immunity from honesty and decency. There is no need for a law to condemn this behavior. It is outrageous on its face. Burr and Feinstein are among the worst of the swamp. Both to go, um, both ought to go. Burr's, and that again, it was a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence where he never helped Trump, appeared to be either in on or supportive of the coup. Feinstein pulled the dirty trick on Kavanaugh. No one will miss her in Washington, D.C. Well, maybe some of the radical leftists, but the rest of America needs somebody new from California in the Senate. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Share this show. Like our Facebook page. Share this Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. Join this effort that the show is an effort to have a national conversation every day about the unique, extraordinary greatness of America. Tune into my show every day where I always talk truth about America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can